Hey everybody, Adrian here, one of the co-hosts of Sidebar Forever, the new version of the former Sidebar Pop Culture Podcast. Every month, Sidebar Forever posts brand new episodes discussing and examining pop culture and art-related topics. However, as a bonus and a reminder to listeners who followed us in our previous incarnation, we're representing some of our vintage back episodes. Many of our classic interviews and roundtables will once again be available in our podcast feed. So, please enjoy this back episode from the Barchives, and don't forget to subscribe to Sidebar Forever on SidebarForever.com, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or anywhere else you get your podcast. And hey, follow us on our socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so you don't miss a single new episode of Sidebar Forever. Today's show, we present part two of our special interview with Gaijin Studios' Brian Stelfreeze. I have kind of a music background. It's the same thing when you're recording analog straight to tape. You, ch- you make different choices and you follow different instincts than you do when you're sequencing in the computer. Yeah, and exactly, you realize exactly. that you can go back and alter and punch in in the most... It, it just changes your responses. But when it's, you know, hit the record button, go, yeah. you have you use different instincts and, mm-hmm. and it comes oh, yeah. across. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the, the nice thing about it is is uh, is there's a difference even, even on an individual artist between doing what you can research and doing what you know. Like, as an artist, if I'm going to do a painting of, like, a girl and she's going to be sitting on this beautiful car and all of this, that's not what I know. Mm-hmm. That's the sum of what I can research, you know. So I'm going to put in the design work and I'm going to go on the Internet or I'm going to go out and shoot photos and all of this stuff and I'm going to put everything together and get it exactly, you know, sort of right. That's the sum of my research. You know, I'm still, I'm the designer, I'm the artist, but I'm bringing in a lot of beyond myself. Right. But when I'm doing convention sketches and when I'm doing sketches like, you know, doing paintings, you know, sort of at a show, that's what I know. That's what I happen to have on deck. Right. Right then. Right off the Right top. there. Yeah. And, uh, and the cool thing about that is those are two different artists. And I think... I don't see one as being better, mm-hmm. but I appreciate the difference. And it's sort of like what you were talking about. If you know it's one shot, one kill, I got to do this, mm-hmm. then you've got to get up for that game. Right. But if you know that, well, you know, I'll, I'll take a get shot time. at it. If it doesn't yeah. work, you know, so let me try it again. You know, so I'll bring in something else. You know, so I'll do this, I'll do this. Then you almost approach that in a, in a slightly different, you know, sort of uh, mindset. And I think that mindset changes the, uh, the art a little bit. I think, I think maybe another musical comparison could be this commissions and convention sketches and what you did on stage at Heroes. Yeah. It's like a freestyle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what you do for your gig, you have more time to put together and produce it oh, and yeah. arrange it yeah. and, and to yeah. make it what it should yeah. be. Yeah, and the, um, the, thing, the thing about it is, is uh, musicians, you know, particularly the jazz guys, you talk to these guys about recording where they've got, like, you know, sort of multi-track recording. They can loop things. They can bring in things. They can quantize. They can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. But then you talk to those guys about jamming, you know, and that's and then a they light thing. up. Yeah, that's it's it's a completely different thing, mm-hmm. you know. You can be passionate about both, but what's really nice is when the jam is working, 
There's nothing like it. There's right. absolutely nothing like it. You know? Exactly right. Yeah, and, and you've got to get out of your head the idea that a mistake could potentially exist. Hmm. You know, if, if you're jamming and you're thinking, ooh, ooh, I might screw this, you're going to screw you're gonna it. You're going to do it. <laughs> you know, it's it's just like you're, you're going to, you know, so that's going to be made manifest. Right, you know? right. but, but if you're jamming and you're just like, I'm just riding with it. I'm just right. enjoying what I'm doing. You know, and if you make a mistake, that's called style. Right. You know, Salonia so. said, "There's no mistakes." Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. he says, yeah. "What you do with the, you know, with the bad note from there is, is, is mm. oh is, yeah. Is, yeah. Is, your, is your saving grace." Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 a it's a totally different thing, in that, I think the best pieces, the best pieces of of any type of art. And when I say art, I mean music, I mean writing, I mean a little bit of all of that. The best art, is right on the edge of a mistake, you know, where you're right. just. You're just right down that line. You know, right. if you do something that's absolutely perfect, that everything is, is perfectly balanced, it's exactly what you wanted it to be, there's nothing to it. Right. You know, it, it, it's actually boring. But if you do something that's just right on it, I mean, that's one of the things that I like about uh, Jackson Pollock's work, mm-hmm. is it is sometimes past the edge of a mistake. <laughs> you know, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, but but there's there's something very interesting about that. It's it's bravery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, go there. Yeah, and even with acting, when someone is just way out there, and they're just taking that chance, and you know, it, it's like knowing that they're just about to fall, kind of makes it you know makes it more interesting. I think for the I think about Robert Downey Jr. and and, um, and uh, what was the movie? Um, Less than zero. Oh yeah, yeah. That was some of his best work. Mm, yeah, because yeah, exactly. Had, after finding out later on he had that drug as substance abuse issue, you and fed into the the, the 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 credibility of that particular part. Mm, oh yeah, there. just way way out there yeah, on the edge. You know, awesome. where where it's just like it's just like this guy is gonna lose it. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's completely gonna lose it, and I, and I think that comes through. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I know it comes through in the art. Mm-hmm. You know, where where a lot of times when I see a piece of art that really sort of sings to me and sometimes I'll get the story behind that and it's just like ah okay <laughs> you know there's a, there was a lot more going on beneath the surface you know there's there's this artist took a chance to get there you know that that is is just the most fun about art is uh is when when an artist is willing to make the mistake mm-hmm. you know that's that's the cool stuff um there's a a thing that I always say a line that is a wrong line that is done with passion is much better than a right line that is done with care, hmm. you know, okay. because that passion I think comes through, mm-hmm. you know, it absolutely comes through, and the reader, I think that that affects the reader. If you're too careful, then that really doesn't have an effect on things. It really doesn't have an effect on the reader at all, you know. So, so I always try to try to ride that edge as much as I can, and you know. I've fallen over that edge a bunch of times. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the cool thing about falling over that edge is... You caught yeah, yourself, though. Yeah. You know, well, well, no, I've, I've completely died, you know, sort of falling <laughs> over that edge. Fall off and fail yeah. five stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but Where'd you go? Yeah, but what's, what's really nice is, is even though I've, like, made mistakes where I was just like, oh, my God, okay, I can't save this, you know, tear it up, you know, sort of start over again. What's cool about that is it hasn't given me cancer. You know, it's just like, you know, I have I don't have a brain tumor because I made a mistake on a painting or right, anything right, like right, that. Right. It's just like really the risk is nothing. Right. <laughs> you know, so so it's Some just time, like well, yeah. Know. So it's just like I may as well. You know, may as well go for it. If there's really ultimately nothing to risk, you know, you may as well go for it. Yeah. 
tell us a little bit about your legendary run, man, on uh, Shadow of the Bat. Oh, <laughs> 50 plus covers, three years of your life. I actually have a, 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 an interview you did with Comics Interview, and it's the funniest thing, but, you know, the blurb they used at the very beginning is, I'm doing the first 12 issues of Shadow of the yeah. Bat. <laughs> and it turned into, like, yeah. the next yeah, just, two and a half years. Yeah, kept on going. Um, that, was, that was actually a... That was that was a really cool run, and I think um, I think Batman is a great character for me because, you know, I'm I'm one of those kids born of Sesame Street, so I have this like really short attention span. You know, it's just like I can only handle one letter of the alphabet at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, a okay, yeah. next. and uh, and what's what's nice about Batman, like to me, Superman, Superman is almost like Mickey Mouse. When he's handled best, he should be handled the same way every time. Superman is a is a fixed character. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. The moral code doesn't change. Yeah, everything you know, like, is everything is is absolutely fixed about Superman. But Batman, one of the nice things about Batman is, Batman can almost be just like Superman. This absolutely morally upright character. But at the same time, Batman can be like Dracula. Right. You know, he can be this dark, mysterious character. Right. You know, but Batman can be like Sherlock Holmes. Right. You know, so Batman is is this one character that you can move in all these different directions. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do Batman where all you see is his cape and his eyes. You can do Batman where you, you see this every muscle in his body muscle suit, you know. So so it's just like because of that, it sort of owes into my attention span. It's just like, well, I don't feel like doing that character this month. Let me do this other character who happens to be the same character, right? <laughs> you know, Sherlock Holmes, Batman, today, yeah, yeah, Dracula, yeah, Batman yeah. tomorrow. Like I, I can show him being more of a detective. I, I the can Phantom do, Batman today. Yeah, it's just like with with Batman, I can do a, a, a funny cover, right? You know, and then the next month I can do a serious cover. You know, the next month, you know, sort of I can do like a cover that's intrigue. So so it's just like because of like I don't think I can do that big a run on any other character except for uh, for Batman, and. I mean, just just really, first and foremost, uh, Denny O'Neill giving me the phone call and saying, we're starting this new Batman series, and I want you to do cover number one. I'm like, okay, just that phone call, I was done. I was just like, just just getting this phone call, you know, sort of, and getting the job of doing a number one Batman series cover, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, if I walk outside and you get hit throw, by a yeah, bus. Yeah, you can throw right. the dirt yeah. on the car and I'm okay. Yeah, yeah I'm, like, I'm like, okay, I, I did it. You know, sort of put that on my tombstone. Right. Um, but uh, but what's what's nice is the writing on that series was always solid, and it was just fun to read it. Uh, Norm Breifogel, when he was doing the art, it's just like I love backing him up. You know, it was just, and, and it was kind of cool because a lot of times I'd get the pages before I'd have to do the cover. And I mean, it's Norm, you know, and he is just, he is smoking, he's going for it. So it's just like, that just encourages me to do, like, my better work on it, or my best work on it. And it's, uh, it's kind of cool. It was just like, just a big, giant run. And at the same time, while I was working on it, I was just like, man, you know, I got to come up with something every month. Did you and, start trying to outdo yourself? And say, oh, okay. yeah. I, well, I, I, I kept trying to outdo myself, and uh, there's, like, a couple of pieces I did in oils just because, hey, you know, let me just do it, <laughs> you know. And, um, and there was, like, I was, I was reading about, uh, I can't remember, uh, Michelangelo, and I heard that he used, like, this casein paint, which is paint made from goat milk. 
And I was just like, okay, cool. Let me track down this, you know, sort of let me track down this goat milk paint. You know? And I like track down this goat milk paint. So, and I did like a couple of covers in that, you know, learned how to use it and then did it on the covers just so I'd have something different to do. And, uh, and it was, it was just fun. Was know? most of it acrylic or? Yeah, probably, um, about maybe 70, 75% of it was, uh, was acrylic. Um, there's like, uh, like I said, a number of covers I did in, uh, oils, a number of covers I did, and just every different material that you can think Gouache, of. Wash, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just really, you know, played with it. And, uh, and it, it was just fun. I, I, think, I think, in a sense, I learned a lot of what I know about composition, design, and even storytelling mm -hmm. from working on those covers. You know, that was, that was just the best job. So did you get a brief for those, or you, did they give you like like basic Synopsis story ideas for that? Or yeah, was... on most on most occasions, I'd get like the uh, the entire script. Oh wow, yeah, that's contrary to what Golden. Yeah, Michael Golden was saying now this is a big problem, you know, for a cover artist to get an idea of what's on the yeah. uh, the interior of the book. And... Yeah, it, um, I think when I when I first got into comics, comics were somewhere in the neighborhood of six months ahead of publishing. And now I just it's like three. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you're lucky, it's three. Okay. You know, um, there's just like uh, the writers aren't really writing that far in advance uh, on stuff. You know, they'll they'll have a good idea of what's going to be, you know, on the uh, in the issue, mm -hmm. but really, a lot of times I'm I'm I end up where the editor says, "Do something iconic." Okay, <laughs> you know, here, right? Here's something iconic, <laughs> which means anything can be the interior. Right. Or they'll they'll kind of go. Um, well, we know that this character is going to be in the book, so do them facing off. <laughs> you know, and, and right. it's like you have no idea what the story is, and you have no idea if they're going to actually be facing off. There have been a number of covers that I've done where <laughs> where I'm like, okay, I'll have them facing off, and actually it's the character showing up on the last page. I was going to say, <laughs> and they never face off. Yeah, and they, and they never face off. So uh, Is that kind of a disappointment to you? Because I know Rockwell is one of your influences, and he's famous for telling the story in one shot. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so, you yeah, know. It's, 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 a, it's a huge um, disappointment. Uh, now, I personally prefer, rather than getting the entire story, I personally prefer getting a uh, a synopsis of the story. Okay. Uh, that way, I'm not in a position where I'll steal some of the good stuff from the interior guy. Right. Because a lot of times when you get like an actual script, you'll get a scene, and it's just like, oh man, this is how oh, I would do this. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> I want to do this scene right here, and you want to just push everything into that one scene that you read in the script, but that might be the best scene in the script. Mm -hmm. And my attitude is. Eh, that should be for the interior guy. Still in slender. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just like I'm taking the heart out of it. I'm, I'm, I'm basically kind of going, "Hey, I get to do the cool scene." You, yeah, you know this is you, the... Yeah, you do it in black and white, and you know, you know this is the money shot. Yeah, so you right. don't want to take it from Norm or whoever's yeah, doing the interior. Yeah. So, um, so it's just like I prefer getting yeah, yeah, a synopsis because that way I can, I'm not given exactly the nuts and bolts of what's going on, the mm -hmm. the blow by blow, but I get a, a sense of what's happening. And uh, most of the covers that I that I like doing. I don't necessarily like doing specific shots from the story. Mm -hmm. I like doing something that kind of gives gives the attitude or the mood of the story mm -hmm. more so than, hey, yeah, in this, these characters are going to face off. You know? Okay. That's, that's, that's the best thing for me. And I think, um, to me, the best covers are covers that are almost like the movie poster for the yeah. book. Yeah. You know, where, where it's not exactly what's going on, but it gives you a sense mm -hmm. of what's going on. I was going to, you had talked at the uh, cover hours panel that you did at ACE, 
And um, well, two things, and I guess this is kind of something for maybe people who are you know artists who are interested in, in, in you know cover art. And you were saying one thing I didn't know was that the cover artist doesn't participate in the royalty system for the yeah. book. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting exclusion because that's the the thing that supposedly would draw the reader in if you're yeah. not already reading the book. Yeah, exactly. You know, you look and oh, well, I'll check this out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then hopefully they get to the interiors and the story and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, to to compensate for that, the cover artist is getting paid much more okay. for a single image than the uh, folks doing the interior stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, well, we're going to guarantee that the cover artist gets a lot of money. Hopefully, you know, that'll encourage him to do his best work on the cover. Okay. Um, so that's kind of how that works out. And okay. quite honestly, the uh, the neat thing about that is is a lot of books don't make a royalty. You yeah. know? So as a cover artist, you're just like, <laughs> you know. It's, right. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, oh, up front. Right. Right, guys. Didn't sorry, guys. Yeah, didn't make a royalty. Sorry, guys. Got nothing but love for you. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but at the same time, uh, when you're a cover artist and a book just takes off, you know, and the interior guy, you know, is basically saying, hey, I just got a check for, you know, sort of $10,000. You're like, oh, damn, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Really appreciate that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a give and take, you know, but on most occasions, there, there are a few exceptions, but on most occasions, uh, the cover artist doesn't participate in the royalty at all. Okay. And I think the second thing, um, and that's, uh, was interesting was, you guys, you it was you and Mark Brooks and Arthur Sedam. Yeah. And you guys were comparing, okay, the length of time, longest length and the shortest length of time you spent working on a cover. Yeah. And you had everyone beaten by a very wide margin oh, at, yeah. in yeah. whopping 30 minutes. Yep. <laughs> and, yeah. and in my preparation to talk with you, I found that cover. Oh, I said, you did. Is this it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like Fallen Angel, and it was the hand with oh, the yeah. spider on it. I right, was like, right. yeah. God. Yeah, because yeah, I came into the studio, and uh, and I had the sketch done, and I came into the studio, and I was just like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I'll do that Fallen Angel cover a little bit later. And uh, I knew I wanted it wanted to get it out before lunchtime and then the guy one of the guys came into my office and said oh we're going to lunch and I was just like ooh uh, can you wait and they were like yeah so I started the cover <laughs> you know? and I started the cover did the cover colored the cover you know it was pretty much gray right you know? and actually like you know sort of sent it off to the editor just before lunchtime so it was like a grand total of I think maybe 33 minutes or something <laughs> you know and I was just like it's like awesome. every cover needs to be like right, this. exactly. <laughs> but when you see, and I'll, and I'll I'll send you the link. But when you see it, I've seen it. Okay, yeah, yeah. it really does work though, because yeah, yeah. if I, if you know that whole five foot rule that you uh, Mark was talking about, if I was five foot from the rack, that would be the image that would stand out to me the oh, most. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm like, okay, why is there a spider on this hand, and is it a tattoo? Is it a real spider? You know, yeah, I mean, exactly. I was intrigued. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, and really, uh, the the nice thing was the fallen angel job in general. Uh, the editor got it on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the editor was uh, Lisa Hawkins, and what was really cool about her was she hired me to do the job, and I told her I was just like, "Well, I want to do something a little different on this," and she was just like, "Go, you know, just cool. just go, just have fun on it. Here's the script, you know, just have a good time." And she approved everything I did. I mean, and they were all kind of different mm-hmm. too. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just re- and uh and really uh. That that job is is kind of cool for uh, for for two reasons, Lisa being such a great editor, and I like got the program Painter, back when it was Fractal Painter. Okay. Know, sort of okay. Back when it, back when the when the program got started, I bought a copy of it, 
I didn't really use it because, you know, it was just, oh, I'm going to have to learn how to use this program. Right, right, right. You know, and I don't actually get paid to learn how to use a program, right. so I'll get to that <laughs> later. Uh, and uh, what was neat was every time they'd come up with a new one, you know, with a newer version, I'd upgrade or get the new version. And it's just like, but the only thing i do is I'd open the program up and go, wow. I, I have painter, <laughs> you know, I have painter, and, and look at that, cool. yeah, that brush stroke, that looks like a real brush stroke, right. wow, cool, okay, close the program, open up Photoshop and do my work, and do your work, and I, and I did that for years and years and years, and finally, I realized, man, I, I've spent a lot of money on this program, and I haven't used it on a single job, so I actually decided, because I wanted to do something different on Fallen Angel, I was like, I'm going to use painter on this project i'm gonna learn how to use painter while i'm working on this project oh, jt mm, yeah. yeah and and what's uh what's really cool was because i was working in a different program it encouraged me to think in a different way right. so it was like really nice you know being able to kind of go all right let me see what the program can do this month let me experiment with this part of the program this month so every month i was experimenting and just having a good time with this brand new program and at the same time, the editor was basically going, go, go, just have a good time, you know, whatever you want to do. So I turned in, uh, that, that run of covers looks so different than anything else I've done, simply because the editorial situation was completely freeing and the working situation was completely different. So Probably my favorite runs in your covers. I love it. Fallen Hazel was an excellent series. Oh, it was. And uh, and again, I think uh, Peter David did a great job with the uh, with the series. And it really, reading the series just encouraged a lot of word pictures for me. Uh, of course, the bad thing is is uh, is when I was out in Texas, after the first issue came out, Peter David came up to me and said, "Ah, oh, Brian, I got to tell you, I love that first issue cover." Okay. I'd like to buy that from you. And, I was and you're like, like, it's like, sorry, dude. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it only exists as is a like, digital realm. <laughs> you know, it only exists as like, you know, sort of 20 megabytes of just stuff. Right. You know? That's an interesting point you bring up. I'm just a little segue from what our regular, regular question is going to be is, how do you figure later on, if you can forecast, I'm asking you to be a, a forecast. Prognosticator, yeah. yeah. Right. Do you think that you're going to be able to get like original art from a digital, such a digital, digital realm. Yeah, will you be able to to capitalize on that and be able to like do limited print runs or? Well, see the the weird thing, and and I'm like, I'm I'm a really like, you know, sort of curmudgeon on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like to me, an original is the artist's hand on the canvas. Right. You know, that's that's an original. Mm-hmm. Um, a digital original, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. That's a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to do a commission and I'm going to do an original, then I painted that piece. You know, that's there's not a remark, not a you know sort of hey, I did this and I got in there and I and put I a little, inked it yeah. and I did other yeah, things. It's just to like, it up. Yeah, it's 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 just like that. That's a print. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can call it a remark, you can call it whatever, but it's not a wholly original piece of art. And even um, if you did it on a Wacom tablet, it's mm-hmm. still yeah yeah it's it's still I I made the decision not to have an original there. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of a, kind of a tricky thing. I, I think when you do stuff digitally, it's like, you need to accept the fact that you, that you didn't do it, <laughs> you know, that you, that you didn't do an original, an original doesn't exist. And 
I think what's really cool about that is using digital as a production tool, it allows you to do things much faster. It allows you to, I mean, the time it takes me to do a digital painting is about half half the time it takes me to do a actual on paper and canvas painting. Wow, okay. You know, which is cool. Mm-hmm. When I do something on paper and canvas, I can generally sell it you know, sort of for so much. Uh, what's nice is I can sell it to the company and then I can sell the original to something, to someone, and make twice as much money. Right. But with a digital piece, I'm doing it in half the time. So really it kind of... It kind of balances yeah, it itself kind of balances out. You can do more work digitally and compensate for the yeah, lot. A lot faster, you know. Um, and when I do stuff digitally, that painting that is on my screen is what shows up on the comic. I don't have to really think about, ooh, I need to be careful about using these blues, I need to be careful about using instead of these purples or anything like that. I don't even have to think about that because the digital media isn't going to give me those colors that I can't use. Mm -hmm. So all of the pieces that I've done digitally, when I see the reproduction, it is dead on. It's like it went from here to there. But when I do an original painting and I scan it, and even when I sit there with the scanned image mess around with the curves and try to get it just right. When that reproduces, if you compare that to the original, it is a, in a different neighborhood. So so digital, it has its benefits, and those benefits are huge. You know, but the original, that has its benefits, and those benefits to the collector is huge. Are tremendous as yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so I think it's, it's a different thing. You know, one is good at one part, one is good at another part. I'm not necessarily a giant fan of digital fine art. Right. That that to me, you know, that that, that that's oxymoronic. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that, that's getting into an oxymoron. Okay. You know, that's 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 a little bit uh, a little bit tricky. You okay. know, as, as far as I'm concerned. Interesting. Now, I think, I think you can do a lot of stuff digitally to start pieces, but I think, to me, an original requires an artist working on it. You know, I've even heard like. Some guys go, oh, what I do is I do it digitally, and I do it in Photoshop, and I do it in Painter, and everything like that. And after I'm done with it, I print out one. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then after I print out one, I delete the file off my computer so it doesn't exist anymore. And I'm like, okay, ooh. Right. You know, it's right. still not an original, <laughs> you know. Well, in fine art, you know, that's part of it, too, is, is as people inspect things for, you know, its authenticity, they look for imperfections and brush strokes and... And the pigment and the paint or whatever to see, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's, you know that kind of stuff. So I mean, all that is a yeah. part of the process. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's my thing. Is you know, if it's an original, the origin is here. You know, this is this is the piece that I I put this paint down. You know, that paint right there, I picked up and I put it down over here. Absolutely. You know, it's not a situation where. You know, sort of, uh, I painted it on the Wacom tablet, and right. and then I told, I sent it to the printer. Therefore, there's the original. It's like that. That seems a little weird to me. You know, I mean, in ten years, I might change my mind on it. But for right now, I think, I think a orig- unoriginal should originate from the hands of the artist. You know, that's just me. Interesting. Brian, talk a little bit about like going into uh, your, when you started Jones and to do interiors and, and kind of feeding your, your storyteller bug in, in, in sequential art. Um, and, and you've mentioned in the past that when you do a lot of painting, it's difficult for you to switch and do interiors, or if you do a lot of interiors to switch oh, yeah. to do yeah. painting. And, and, and why you, you think maybe that 
that kind of happens. Well, the um the thing the thing about it is is uh when when you're doing a cover, you're it's a show off piece. You're really just kind of putting it all in there, and you're if you're gonna go for detail, if you're gonna go for composition, you're just putting it out there in okay. a single piece. And with a cover, I know that I'm competing with a bunch of other guys that are gonna be gonna be on the stands, you know, that month. And I'm basically just trying to slap you around and saying, look here. Okay. I don't want you to look at any of these other covers up here. Look at this right here. That's it. I want to arrest you with this single image. But when you're doing interiors, it's a completely different story. I want to move you along with this single image. It's it's almost the antithesis. You know, it's like I want to show you a single image, and I don't. I'm going to do things on that single image to repel you from it so that you can only look at it for a short period of time and then move on to the next image and then move on to the next image. And the next so you're image. less of an illustrator at that point, more of a cinematographer. Uh, exactly, exactly. That's, that's, that, is, that is the way of saying it. So now I'm in this, in this position where if I'm doing covers, I'm only thinking of stop, stopping the reader. The composition stops the reader. Right. The composition pulls you in towards the middle, pulls you in towards the center. The composition is constantly fixing the reader. But when I'm doing the interior stuff, I have to now think of, I can't pull you in towards the center. I've got to slide you off to the left right. or slide you down to the right. The design of the yeah, page has to, to lead the readers yeah, out. Try to move you, you know. And and at the same time, it's just like I don't want to do an illustration on interiors that's going to be too beautiful. That's going to be too arresting. And as as a cover artist, that hurts. You right, know, or you know, there's you work so hard to get those skills, yeah. only to diminish. Yeah, there's um, I just know. I just finished this uh this Midnighter job, and I was ask you about that because yeah. I was reading Midnighter. Uh, and there's while. um there's one panel where um even the writer wrote this panel as a splash page of like you know sort of Midnighter standing in in you know this a bunch of bodies of these you know sort of mutants lying around, and, <laughs> and it's just this it is just a quintessential Midnighter splash page. Right. And when I got to that part in the script, I'm like, oh. This is it. This is the splash. And, and you know, naturally you're thinking, man, this is going to be the splash. This is going to be the page that everyone's going to be sorting after. You know, I'm going to be able to sell this page for three, $400. <laughs> this is all. Oh, this is it. But as a storyteller, I realized, wow, if I do this page the way the artist wants to do this page, this page will stop the story. Actually, what I really need on here is something to slide you off to the next page. Gotcha. Because I don't want the story to stop here. I don't want you to stop and gaze at Midnighter looking cool. Right. I want you to do that for a second, but I'm going to put something on the bottom of the page to slide you over to the next page. Okay. Which kills me as an artist. You know, it's just like I would never do that. So it's just like that's the type of thing. That's 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 the difference, you know, that you that you have to shift into from you know, now I have a page that's got like Midnighter's legs cut off by another panel, you know, <laughs> and it's a panel of like a desert, you know, sort of with a helicopter way off into the background that you can barely see, okay. and it's just like, okay, well, yeah, it's not as cool if as if it was a full body of Midnighter, but it tells the story a little bit better. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of a, a a different mindset, and when you're working in that one mindset of stopping, 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 it's hard. To shift over to the mindset. I mean, a lot of times, uh, what I end up having to do is if I've been doing nothing but covers, rather than starting on pages, I'll do layouts. Okay. And 
you'll see my first couple of layouts are like super detailed and super beautiful layouts. <laughs> okay. But then as I get on to the layouts and they're just stick figures. You phone them in. And yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, okay, it's like, okay. Yeah. 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 I do the drawing when you actually get to the page, and uh, and what what's annoying or what what ended up being annoying to the point where I had to do something about it was when I first did Psychops. I had a had a great time, and that was. I was going to ask you next about Psychops. And, yeah, well, I mean, uh, that, that was that was the first thing I did, and I and I wanted to get into comics, and I went to a convention, and again, you know, I have this ability to accidentally get jobs. Um, I accidentally don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost like Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, exactly. These happy situations, yeah, like, and you're like, wow, yeah, okay, it's, cool. It's, it's like you know, sort of Forrest Gump and uh, you know Chauncey Gardner, where, um, where it's, it's like you know, just completely accidentally fall into it. Now, and I got the job, you know, accidentally. Um, at that point, I had done nothing but commercial illustration, mm-hmm. and now I'm being asked to do uh, the interior work for a book. And when I did it, I was really learning some things, and I was trying to bring in all this knowledge from movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I realized, even while I was working on it, that, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And after I finished Psychops, I kind of sat back and went, you know what, I need to do some more research on it. And when I did more research on it, I found out that, wow, actually, there is no research. <laughs> you know, sort of, there's, you know, outside of Will Eisner... Really, you're kind of on your own. Right. How to far, draw comics yeah. from Marvel Way or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, and even with how to draw comics from Marvel Way, that talks about illustration. That right. doesn't talk about storytelling. And I kind of thought I had illustration a little bit under control, but like storytelling is just this weird, diaphanous thing, where like you know people show their artwork to an editor, and the editor says, "Work on your storytelling," and you're like. What does that mean? How? <laughs> you know exactly how. Point out a book to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so like, I really, I really started started getting into it and uh, and started doing like a lot of research on it and really paying attention to this language of comics, this mm-hmm. language of of panel to panel progression, and uh, and it was just fun. I mean, it was just really kind of discovering things. And uh, the nineties was an absolutely awful time for comic book storytelling. It kind of Com- was, yeah, yeah. comic book storytelling <laughs> didn't exist. Right. But it was the best time for comic book art. Right. There was just like some of the best comic book art that you've ever seen got produced in the 90s. Just really cool looking stuff. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother telling a story, mm-hmm. but it was really cool looking stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of guys got influenced by just drawing really cool big splashy images right. and the portfolios that I would see over the last you know, 10 years were portfolios that were influenced by that mm-hmm. but now that stuff has gone away long enough to where the portfolios that I'm seeing now I'm getting students and young guys coming up basically saying not how do I draw but hey my storytelling how do I work on my storytelling and that, you know, I'm like, okay, this really means something, you know. So I, so I think, comics, as far as storytelling is concerned, it's going to change change dramatically when these new people who are really into storytelling, you know, and the fact that Savannah College of Art, right. um, the Hubert uh, School, um, Savannah College of Art has a campus here in Atlanta now, right. and even RISD, they're really, right. all of them are doing a lot of scholarship, a lot of scholarly approach, you know, sort of to the storytelling of comics. And uh, and when that stuff starts coming in, 
I think that's going to change things. You know, and I was speaking over your shoulder at Ace, and I noticed like a lot of the guys that came up to you, there were a lot of black spotted, there was a lot yeah, of composition, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. a lot of like interesting angles, and it wasn't like just guys punching each other and, and yeah, dynamic exactly, stuff. Exactly. And I was like, okay, well, wow, this really is kind of a yeah. I mean, there was there was um, there was uh, this girl came up to me uh, in um, in Charlotte uh, just last weekend, and she showed me just a group of pages. And there wasn't a single action scene in the entire group of pages. It was it was nothing but characters talking to each other, characters moving through you know sort of scenes. But it felt good, you know. It, it, it's almost like uh, to me when you um, you can watch a Bruckheimer movie okay. with like stuff blowing up and these huge like gasoline explosions. You know, even even when someone throws a handkerchief on the ground, it it's just, dramatic. Yeah, it just, <laughs> it just explodes into like, you know, sort of bright orange gouts of flame. You know, so, but um but at the same time, I'll watch a movie like that and it's just like it just really gets you going. Yeah. But then I'll watch something like Sense and Sensibility. Right. And a turn of phrase, you know, an expression that an actor makes that same thing that happens in that Bruckheimer film where you're like, whoa, right, right, right. you know, will happen in this film with just two characters exchanging dialogue right. and an actor just moving or saying the right thing at the right time. And it's just like, well, obviously they're related. It doesn't have to be a napalm explosion. It could be just a little tiny character piece. And seeing something like that girl that came up this weekend made me realize, okay, cool, you know, there are some new guys that are on their way. Right. You know, they're on their way and they're understanding that I don't necessarily need to have stuff blowing up all the time mm-hmm. to get, you know, sort of that feeling across. Mm-hmm. You know? So so that's that's really exciting. And I, I think I'm I'm hoping that that's where comic goes. Yeah. I definitely think it will as well. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I mean, you know, you, you look at a lot of the up and coming artists and, and even now there is a little more diversity as far as genre yeah, yeah. than there was 10 years ago in the 90s, like what you're talking about in terms of horror comics and crime stories exactly, exactly. and adventure stuff that doesn't necessarily involve like capes and tights and, uh, mm-hmm. right, yeah, and, and masks. Yeah, and I think um, what's... Nothing uh, against capes and tights and masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bread and butter. It needs to always be there. But, uh, <laughs> but what's, what's really cool is your average person. You know, like, like the 90s, man, we so screwed up during the 90s because normal people dared to walk into comic shops. Right, and ask for stuff. Yeah, because of, like, there were a few giant reports on CNN, you know, a couple of big comic books came out with number one issues, and that just flooded everyone to the comic book shop. So you had all these, like, normal people walking into comics, you know, and, I dare say, girls, walking into (laughs) comic book shops. And when they walked in, all of the publishers, what they decided to do was, hey, let's make even dumber superheroes in capes. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they just flooded the market with even even dumber, even more stupid superheroes in capes, poorly written stories, stories that were beautifully illustrated, but they didn't tell the story, right. or just badly illustrated altogether. Right. You know, that's what the market was flooded with. the with. 3D hologram, mm-hmm. tinfoil oh, yeah, cover, yeah, you know. Yeah. You know cover. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did, I did a cover that had, like, <clears throat> fur on it. You know, I mean, it was just like, it was just nuts. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was just like all these, like, weird, like, hologram stuff. Uh, it and was a toy, basically. Yeah, yeah. Game. And it was like, that had nothing to do mm-hmm. with story. And not only did that have nothing to do with story, all of that stuff... The people that were in comics 
you know, that were there for Nexus, that were there for The Dark Knight Returns, that were there for The Killing Joke, that were there for, you know, sort of even the girls that were in comics that were there for Breathtaker and all these really great right. stories being done. When that Brothers. stuff, when that stuff flooded in, none of us liked it. Right. You know, none of us, the people that were the hardcore fans, none of us gave a crap about all the lenticular covers and all that stuff. Superman with the, uh, the pro wrestler haircut. Yeah, yeah, and, mullet, you know, mullet Superman you know. and blue Superman and, you know. It's like, no, none of us in comics Bob cared Wilson. about that. Yeah. And not only that, but none of the new people coming to comic book shops cared about that. Right. So the industry, as a whole got together to produce a bunch of books that no one could possibly care about. And I'm just like, whoa, my God, we totally blew it. All I, of these people were there to buy comics, and we didn't... And, missed, make, and we missed yeah, the boat. Yeah, we didn't make comics for the people that were there already, and we didn't make comics for the, the... All the people who were showing interest yeah, from yeah. the outside coming in. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, I didn't, you know, my, my attitude at the time was, oh, my God... There are wheelbarrows full of money. <laughs> you know, sort of like, but, let me get some of that. <laughs> but to speak to that, I think that uh, it went from like 5,000 to like 10,000 comic shop retailers over the course of like the yeah. 89 to like 94. Or something oh, yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. I mean, it just doubled. Bottom oh, yeah, it was you know? huge. It was, it was totally huge. But eventually, because eventually it will get back to the pro. I mean, comics in general are not valuable things. Right. You know, I mean... I think there's probably less than 1% of the comics out there have any ba value right. you know, sort of to them. So if you're collecting, and the weird mentality of, of like, hey, this comic sold 8 million copies. It's a collector's item. It's like, right. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I really don't understand collector's items. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like maybe, maybe the one that sold three copies might become a collector's item, but definitely the yes. one that sold a million copies. <laughs> Flat out, not right, right. You know, so unless like one guy bought half of that and it all burns up in a yeah, warehouse yeah. somewhere, it's just like it's, it's not. I don't. I don't think anyone's gonna have any problems, you know, sort of uh, looking for those, you know, sort of Spider-Man number one or anything like that. But uh, but like, you know, it it really it really kind of kills me that that we we blew it at that time. You you brought up the nineties, and I did want to ask you about uh, Blanc Noir back. Uh, I know exactly when you guys started it. Yeah. But I can re wanted to ask about uh, the forming of it and uh, the characters that you guys created. And is anything ever going to happen with those characters? Because I know you had uh, Ma Maximum Velocity, yeah, Velocity and, which and, was awesome, sir. And Cully, yeah. Cully had Brave, and right. I have actually have a couple issues of Heretic, Heretic. with the uh, Maximum Velocity, uh, mm, yeah, uh, the oh. five pages mm. or short pages in the back. Mm -hmm. But um, how that got started, and, and, and is there anything going to happen with those characters? Well, the, um, the tricky thing about that is uh, all of us were doing, and, and it, it, it's almost like we could see the writing on the wall. You know, all of us were doing just stuff for Marvel or DC or whoever. Right. And, uh, and none of us were doing any creator-owned stuff. And, uh, and we just kind of sat back, like, I remember a drive Kelly and I had in, where we were like, you know what, we need to actually do something for ourselves here. You know, because all of this, you know, we're basically just lining the pockets of Marvel and DC right now, so yeah. we should do something for ourselves. And we got the idea to um, to do, like, a creator-owned uh, line of comics. And we thought of what we were going to do, and then we figured, all right, let's pitch it to um, you know, a couple of the, you know, sort of comic book companies. Uh, Dark Horse uh, picked it up, and it was a no-brainer for Dark Horse, because this was right during you know, sort of the heart of 
anything that anyone did creator owned was going to sell a gazillion copies. So they were like, whoa, you guys are a big deal. You know, right. sort of, we're on it. So uh, they, um, they got us. We, um, our original intention was to do all of the stories as part of an anthology. And we wanted to do what would end up being a, uh, a, uh, a 12 issue anthology. And then after doing the 12 issue anthology where each of us would do eight, eight pages, mm -hmm. then all of those stories can be broken out into like their own monthly series yeah, or yeah, limited like, series. Or like four, four or five different um, collected editions. Mm -hmm. And then we could go on and do like limited series or whatever you want because that anthology would introduce your character. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a situation where every month you'd get a fat book. You know, every month you'd get like this this fat book with an Adam Hughes story, me, Cully, Cully Joe, yeah, and everybody. Everybody. Uh, and, uh, and Dark Horse <laughs> went with that for a while, and then they said, you know what, it would be better if these were single issues. Hmm. And it ended up being pretty close to the same amount of work. So um, so we didn't balk too much about it, and we just kind of went, okay, let's, let's do that. But the crash started happening. Oh. You know, sort of, so... The brakes got Yeah, so, um, so... Jay's story got out, um, Joe's uh, heretic got out, and right when I started, you know, sort of to do the first pages of uh, Maximum Velocity, we got the call from Dark Horse going, uh, is it possible that we can change our deal just a little bit? And <laughs> oh, no. as soon as that went into, yeah. you know, negotiations, that pretty much killed everything. Okay. So, um, so Yeah, so Dave Johnson, Kelly, and I, Never got a chance to uh, to get our books instead of uh, off the uh, off the ground. You know, sort of maximum velocity only existed as backup stories. Um, I've got the story and I've got layouts for you know, sort of the first two issues you know of my story. You know, like sitting in a drawer somewhere, and uh, and it's something that Carl and I have talked about, and we'd like to get back to it. That would be point. awesome. I remember being very hyped and excited about the mm -hmm. fact that you guys were gonna we're gonna do oh, something yeah, as yeah. a. As a collective. as a collective and as individuals, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And um and really uh the uh the night the fun thing is is uh is you know probably once every you know year or so Kevin uh, from Twelve Gauge says you know <laughs> you know it would be it would be n a no brainer for me to just do this stuff for you guys so uh so it's it's something that if um you know if if you see you know sort of a advertisement for the collected backup stories of Maximum Velocity you know that. That's gonna that happen. That's yeah, that 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 Carl and I are, are gonna pretty much jump in there and, and finish that thing up. Cool. I hear you. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll go, we'll wrap it up here with this last one because uh, and that was attempting to like I said start in the present and kind of work our way oh, backwards. Oh, back, move back. <laughs> yeah, we're moving around. Go back in time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I, I, I did. Uh, I know we did the. Uh, you guys did the the, the Gaijin panel, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't want to cover some of the stuff in that because that, all that is is pretty much priceless as it is. It really is. But I did want to ask about uh, starting the studio. It's been like 15 years, yeah. and I guess it's basically now it's you and Cully and Carl Story. Yeah, are the uh, and you guys are the original founding members, basically. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, Cully, Cully came in a little bit later on, but uh, but yeah, you know he was he was uh, the last guy in uh, guys in the, the very one. first generation yeah. of the mm -hmm. uh, of the studio. But um, what is it about the studio environment that you like versus working at home? Because it seems like maybe 90 percent of all the comic artists. You know, it's very solitary and they work on their own. But what is it that you like about it? And 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 talk a little bit about, I guess, you know, how you guys met. Because I oh. assume it was conventions and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That. The uh, the cool thing is, is uh, like Carl and I. I mean, talk about your odd meeting. Um, that first 
show that I went to to show my work where I accidentally got the job of Psychops. Was that Fantasy Fair? Um, yeah, that was uh, that was Fantasy Fair. But Mark Walter? Mm, um, no, it was um, David Anthony Kraft. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, but I went I went to um, to the show and I had like uh, three Captain America pages that I'd done, and I showed that to the editor and the editor liked it and the editor was just like, oh yeah, we'd love love to have you do this book for us. And, uh, and what was really cool was the editor, right then and there, I mean, it was a done deal for him. And I was just like, I was still going, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm ready to do that. And, uh, and the editor said, well, let's pick out an inker for you. Okay. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> you know? So, um, so he, uh, he showed me some pages from some inkers that he thought would look good on my work. And, uh, and I picked one guy, and I said, man, I love this guy's inks. And uh, and he said, "Oh, that's Mark. Mark is really good." And uh, Mark, and I was just, farmer? Um, I think probes. Mark probes. Uh, okay. And uh, and I said, I said, "Yeah, I really like the way he does backgrounds." And he said, "Well, well, Mark has an assistant that does the backgrounds." And I was just like, "Well, who's the assistant?" And they're like, "Oh, well, he's not ready for for doing a okay. you know interior you know doing a, a full story yet." But but man, you know, sort of Mark would look really and uh, and I was just like, "Yeah, but I like the guy that's doing the backgrounds." I mean, you know. Give it up. <laughs> I'd like I'd like him if if I'm working I'd like for him to do my stuff, and uh and we're talking and uh, and at the same time while we're talking, some guy walks up and picks up the Captain America pages off the table, and he's flipping through them and he was just like, wow, whose stuff is this? And the editor that I'm talking to looks up and it's Carl. Ah! And <laughs> and the editor said, ah, oh, Carl, here's Brian. Brian's the guy that did those pages. Brian. Here's Carl. Yeah. Carl's the guy that did those backgrounds. <laughs> and it was just like, I mean, just right then and there, like it was in a movie, you right. know. Okay. And, uh, and that's when Carl and I met. And, okay. uh, and we've been kind of like, you know, sort of buddies ever since then. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Carl would, um, you know, sort of from there, Carl lived in, uh, in Florida, uh, Fort Walton Beach at the time. And from time to time, he would shoot up to, uh, to my place and hang out for a week, just kind of getting stuff done. And, uh, and later, we met uh, Adam at the Heroes Convention, okay. and we hung out like one night, you know, sort of in Adam's room, just kind of talking art, and just kind of, and it was just great, and uh, and from there, uh, Carl started inking Adam on, uh, and I forgot what the project was. was Justice League, maybe? Yeah, yeah, Justice okay. League, uh, but Carl started inking Adam, and then Adam and Carl would sometimes, both, because the studio that I, um, I had an apartment that had a huge studio, so it was like... Adam was working out of his like spare bedroom or off his kitchen table. Carl had a little tiny space, so I was just like, "Hey, everybody, come to my studio. I've got plenty of space." Okay. So, um, so they'd all come up to the studio and just kind of hang out, and and we'd end up getting a lot of work done, not getting any sleep done, just having a great time. And we did that several times. And after a while, it just got to the point where we were like, "Man, if we could do this right. all the time, you know, it's just like this. This would just be the coolest thing, you know." And uh. And just on a whim one day, you know, I um, checked, you know, called up a real estate agent and said, you know, how much would it be to, you know, sort of lease some office space? And it was reasonable. I mean, at the time, it was like $1,000 for 1,500 square feet. So I was just like, okay, It's like a that, small house, basically. Yeah, I was just like, that breaks down to not really paying that much. You know, right. if we can get like four or five guys in there, you know, sort of, that's like, I could get rid of, I could just get a one-bedroom apartment. And the money that I'm saving on just getting a one-bedroom apartment, 
would more than make up for that. So, right. uh, and everyone else kind of thought the same thing. You know, it would be the equivalent of, you know, the difference in getting a two-bedroom apartment and a one-bedroom apartment would be paying for the studio. And, uh, and at the same time, rather than us running to Kinko's and blowing our money, you know, at Kinko's, we could buy, we could all pool our money together and buy a copier. We could all pool our money together and right. buy all this different stuff that we all could use. So, uh, so it was like, it was great. You so know? now one has the power and the resources of five or six. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly, right. exactly. And uh, so we kind of committed to it and, uh, and did it. And we got like uh, Tony Harris Tony involved. Harris, yeah. um, we'd always, um, Joe Phillips uh, got involved because uh, all of us were guys that kind of hung out in the southeast. Except for Adam, but he'd always come down for the uh, southeastern shows. Uh, but then, from Jersey, right? Yeah, but okay. then when we went out to uh, California to the San Diego convention, we met Jay, uh, Jason Pearson, and Jay had the same attitude as everyone else. So we invited him. It was just this thing that just kind of just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we just invited everyone in to the studio, and and it was just what was cool was we we didn't realize the benefits that we had unleashed when we first started. I mean, it got to the point where it was no one suffered from having any downtime because it was pretty easy. If someone didn't have a job or was just finishing up a job, it was constantly, I'd be getting calls saying, hey, I need you to do this. And if I couldn't do it, I'd, you that call would somebody else. Yeah, that yeah. call wouldn't leave the building. You right. know, I would just be like, oh, yeah, I'm too busy. But if you're looking for an artist to put on that, right. Joe, you know, right. and I could toss a job to him. I got jobs tossed to me. There would be times where I don't have time to do that job technically, but I would get a lot of goodwill if I did that job. So I'd go ahead and take it on and get some of the guys to help me out. And I mean, it was just so beneficial, you know. And at the same time, something that was cool was if an editor just turned out to be an asshole, <laughs> you know, I'd go, whoa, this editor's an asshole. And I'd tell everyone else in the studio, <laughs> for this guy. He is an asshole. The guy's in blacklist. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, and that was a weird thing. It's like we would blacklist editors. Right. So, uh, so if that editor would call someone else, they'd go, "Hey, uh, no, I don't my have list, time. dude. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't have time to do this." So, uh, so it really kind of kind of changed things. And a lot of, uh, I mean, it got to the point, especially in the um, in the early '90s, where like editors got to the point where they'd call up, they'd call me, and they'd go, "Hey, can anyone there?" do this job. Right. You know, they weren't even calling me specifically. They were just generally, we just need Which someone. Which is the to, unintended benefit we, of the yeah, studio. Yeah, and it was it was just great. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. Even though it's um, just uh, the three guys now, it's just like, we love it. Do you think you guys will bring somebody else in uh, beyond the core, the mm -hmm. core three now, or well, the, uh, the, if it happens? Or? The fun thing about it is, is uh, generally with the studio, we haven't ever thought about it. You know, we it's haven't ever... Yeah, I mean, we've, we, yeah, we've allowed it to be organic, and okay. uh, and we're not exactly sure what's going to take place, you know, sort of in the next year, in the next couple of years, but um, I'm pretty certain that there's going to be a studio, but I have no idea, you know, sort of what the, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. The studio has almost become its own entity. You right. know, there's there's me, Cully, Carl, and the studio. Right. And, you know, sometimes the studio decides it wants another member. You know, sometimes some crazy person will show up and say, I want to be in, guys, and, 
and we'll just kind of go, oh, yeah, sure. I, I, I have a, an image in my head of the studio, like, having the voice of Hal from, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hal from exactly. Hello, Brian. Yeah. I would like another member now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a studio. I, I feel you guys need another member. All right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. You can't let that one go. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's totally Hal yeah. won't let me out of the studio. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally cool, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of, it's, 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 it's fun just uh, just letting that happen, you know. And uh, you know that's that's all we're here for, you know. That's that's all we're here for. That's all we're doing. That's all we want to do is just just have a good time and and try to tell some cool stories while we're at it. You know, you're succeeding at that. How often mm-hmm. do you get to talk to the ex Gaijiners? Uh, mm-hmm. Um, like Dave and Jason. And- I don't uh, I don't talk to Dave uh, much at all. Uh, but uh, but like Jason, uh, the cool thing about uh, Pearson is. Probably once a month or every other month, I'll call Jay about something I've discovered, or Jay will call me about something he's discovered. And I realize, man, when that happens, I hope I don't have a deadline because that's going to be several hours instead right. of on the phone where right. we're just going back and Catching forth. And- yeah, yeah, where I'll, I'll, and, and Jay is the master. I mean, Jay's, Jay's kind of like the Japanese, you know, like Americans invented, you know, sort of cars. But he, he finds you know, sort of, it and yeah, perfects Jay, it. Yeah, Jay will take it and go, oh, you invented that here. Uh, there. That's, that's, that's a much cooler way of, of doing something. You know? right. um, so, so I'm constantly like, I love telling Jay stuff because I know, oh, man, Jay's going Jay's gonna to take this and perfect it. You right. know? So, um, so we're always like going back and forth. And, uh, and because Jay is in 12-gauge, I'm constantly uh, on That's the phone right, yeah, with him. That's right, yeah, because he's involved in 12-gauge. Yeah, I'm constantly on the phone with him. We're doing all the 12-gauge shows with him and everything like that. So uh, so of the ex-members, Jay's probably the one that I talk to the most. But uh, but Adam, you know, sort of uh, when uh, when we get together, we have like a kind of a comic book artist get-together mm-hmm. uh, from time to time. And uh, and I always see Adam at those. And we're, you know, sort of always, you know, sort of free to chat and stuff like that. So, so it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Cool. Well, I guess we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up, man. All right, man. Thank you so much for uh, for chatting with us, dude. Dude, it was uh, very it was light. Fun, it was yeah, a lot it was of fun. fun we, we've talked uh, a good bit longer than I thought we would. So yeah, we'll I hope you can. Yeah, I hope you can condense this. Let's give you a full breath. Yeah, I do. While I have you here, uh, I'm gonna put you on the spot, and uh, I have in my hands uh, the comics interview that Brian did, uh, announcing he was gonna do the shadow of the back covers, and I wanted to ask you about this photo. Oh man! <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's, that's I was like, coming through it. I was like, "Hey, that's him." Yeah, yeah. This is this is the the days before the hat. Right, exactly. And I was like, "Okay, the, if the, if there was audio for the photo, it'd be like, are you talking to me?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of yeah. What's uh, what's yeah. actually uh, funny about this is this is the first San Diego um, I did, okay. and uh, and I did it as uh, as as part of a comics interview. This uh-huh. is uh, back when. Uh, when I was doing Psychops, and the um, uh, Julia Mather, um, who was kind of like the uh, the assistant, you know, sort of at uh, at Comics Interview, she uh, <laughs> she was just like, "All right, Brian, pose for a photo," and I actually <laughs> you know, sort of struck a struck a most muscular pose, ah. but, uh, but she just shot the top part. So <laughs> okay, so so if we if didn't she, get any of the body language in yeah, there, if just, you could have if you could have panned down, you'd see like huge, you'd be like huge biceps, <laughs> and you know, like you know, oh yeah, man, she, that dude's ripped, yo, he's stockings out. Yeah, if, if the white hadn't blown out, you'd see like that nice shelf of chest going on. There. But uh, but the photo like disguises that. Oh know? well, you know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, these are you know, it's it's always weird for me to see pictures of uh, you know, because like you know, I've 
you know, ever since I took a, a trip to Jamaica, I picked up the uh, the kufi. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I've worn it, you know, pretty much ever since. Mm. So uh, so it's just like it's just like whoa, there's me, and and there's no hat. Right. You know, it's, so <laughs> Who it, is that guy? Yeah, it even makes me look. It even makes me feel uncomfortable when I see pictures of myself without the hat. Trust me, I <laughs> understand. understand. I, I, I have a scan of a Firestorm illustration you did. And uh, I sent it to Dwight, and we both were like, "Okay, that's him." That's him mm-hmm. the, the it's like a mirror. You, it looked like you probably had a mirror, and it's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And then the yeah. fire on top. That's the hat, yeah. you know. It's like, yeah. And it's a brother now, so yeah. he was like, yeah. "Okay, fire, that's him. We yeah, know that's fire, him." Firestorm. There's a. There've been a. You know, and I always try to trick it out if I can. But Firestorm was just one of those. One of those things where it's just like, ah, how cool man. would it be? To- <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's weird because it's just like I happen to be in the studio with a couple of white guys. So I can't get them the model for it. Right. Ah, <laughs> like, oh, damn. <laughs> so, so, no, but it worked. It, it worked. Does. And it, and it worked.